Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Hello, this is Legal Nurse Podcast. My name is Pat Iyer, and I have the pleasure of bringing to you Karen Harmon. Karen is a labor and delivery expert witness whose clinical experience has been in San Diego, California, and serves attorneys by helping to screen cases involving obstetrical care, as well as testifying as a nursing expert witness. You may know that labor and delivery is one of the areas where there's the most litigation and some of the most catastrophic outcomes, both for the mother and the baby. Mm -hmm. These cases are worth a fortune given the care that um, a catastrophically injured mother might incur or a baby who is born with severe deficits. Looking at what happened in the labor and delivery process can be the key to understanding the outcome. For this program, and you may want to, after you watch this program or listen to it on our audio channels, look up Karen's previous podcast in which we talked about shoulder dystocia. In this podcast, we're going to talk about the panic associated with when a obstetrical emergency arises, and we need to get that mother in for delivery and fast. Karen? Uh, let's talk about delivery delays, because that's the other piece of what I just said. You know you have to get that person in quickly, and yet the system <clears throat> or the people are not moving fast enough. Can you give us some insight into some of the factors that go into a delay in a C-section okay. or emergent delivery of any kind? Um, absolutely. And, um, thank you for having me back. Um, delivery delays can be absolutely multifaceted and complicated, but what we, what we know is any hospital that is providing obstetrical services, um, should have the capability of responding to an obstetrical emergency and um, the need to do an emergency delivery. This is stated in what we call the blue book. And yes, it's blue. It's called guidelines of perinatal care. It's currently in its eighth edition dated 2017. And this is published by ACOG and AAP. So those are the governing bodies for your obstetricians as well as your pediatricians. And in this, in this publication, it talks about that decision to um, delivery. It's long been termed that 30 minute rule. And historically by consensus, it's been pretty much the standard. So when a decision is made for a C-section delivery, 
the understanding and the goal is that from decision to incision will be 30 minutes. And that has been um, a practice for years. Now, um, in this publication, and I looked back as far as 2012, and I believe the publication first came out in 1983, but as far back as I looked at back in 2012, um, it states that the scientific evidence um, regarding that 30 minute threshold of time is actually lacking. And, but we have in our practice have always gone by this 30 minute rule. So it also states that the decision to incision interval should be based on the timing of what's going on at that time, also taking into consideration the maternal and fetal benefit and risk factors. So this book, we have to understand, um, is guidelines but it's guidelines for all obstetrical services across the US. So that is going to encompass your rural hospitals as well as your urban hospitals. So that's where it starts. Um, and as you said, the date, Karen, I was thinking a book that was published in 2017 was written in 2016. And we are recording this at the end of 2022. I'm wondering when they're going to bring another book out because a five-year-old book is now growing whiskers in the publishing world. And I wonder if they would change any of those guidelines or the significant content in that book for reflecting changes in the last five years. And that's a really good question. And I actually looked up to see, is there a date for the sixth edition to come out? Because as I go back, it seems as though there's about a five minute gap with this particular publication. Now, this is the physician publication that oversees obstetrical care. But that particular statement, interestingly enough, has not changed in the last handful of, um, of publications. So I would think that another publication is coming out soon, but as it stands right now, that 30 minute rule, as we have called it, is still um, heavily in practice and observed by all institutions that I've worked for. Now, understanding that this publication as it's titled is guidelines for perinatal care. And we all know guidelines are just that they're guidelines, but the guidelines, when we, when we have um, guidelines as such that are published by our professional organizations, we working in the hospital and especially those that are very involved in writing policies and procedures and protocols, we read these guidelines, we take in these guidelines, and we, I believe, in my opinion, we take these guidelines and incorporate them the best that we can into the situation that we're practicing in. Because a rural hospital is going to be different than a large urban hospital. And as I review these cases, 
and I know there may have been a delay in delivery, there are questions as an expert that I need to find out. One, I need to find out um, how many deliveries does this hospital do? Does this hospital do 30 deliveries a month or does hospital do 800 deliveries a month? That's a big difference. Um, is this a level one, a level two, or a level three, which usually is related to the NICU level, their neonatal intensive care unit. Based on the level of the hospital, that's going to give me a better understanding of what resources are available to the staff to enable and to conform to this ideal 30-minute rule. And so a level for a minute. Yeah. I, I think I just interrupted what you were going to say for our listeners who are in other countries who are not familiar with level one, level two, level three. Okay, perfect. Because that's what I'm going to explain. Um, level, usually the hospitals are identified as a level one, a level two, a three, or a four. And this is related to their, um, the neonatal intensive care unit that they have in their hospital. A level one is no NICU, no neonatal intensive care unit, and that hospital provides basic newborn care. A level two is a hospital with a NICU that caters to gestations that are 32 weeks or greater, or 1500 grams, about 3.3 pound babies. A level three now is usually divided into further broken down into level three, A, B, and C. Your level C in many documents is synonymous with a level four. So a level four are your large um, trauma centers, your large pediatric hospitals, your um, neonatal intensive care units that do high level surgeries or do ECMO. So many times, depending on the document that you're reading, a level three C is synonymous with a level four. But when I'm moving into a case, I want to know number of deliveries and I want to know the level of the hospital, because that is going to give me great insight as to what their resources are in that hospital. A level one may have to call in the OR crew for an emergency C-section, whereas a level two and almost always in a level three, you have a full OR team and anesthesia ready to mobilize. So I've worked in a level one, a level two, and a level three. And the last hospital I worked in in San Diego was a level three. And we were able to do, with an available OR, we were available to do emergency C-sections in five to eight minutes. So that's a big difference from this 30-minute rule. But remember, these guidelines for perinatal care published are meant to encompass all different OB services from your rural to your urban hospitals. Can you take us through, and this is a general question, what are the steps from the time that there's a recognition of the need to do an emergency C-section, what are the steps that the OB nurses 
and the OR staff, and they may be different groups or the same, what do they need to accomplish in order to get that woman on the table with her skin getting prepped for a C-section? Well, again, that's gonna go back to what resources that particular hospital has available. Um, and going back to the level of the hospital, the number of deliveries, the availability of the OR crew, that's why one of the things that I do when I'm beginning these reviews, as, as all of you probably do when you're reviewing cases, is to um, request specific policies and procedures that would be related to what you're reviewing. And in this particular case, I'm going to be asking for policies and procedures that may seem obvious. Emergency cesarean section, attendance at high-risk deliveries, um, cesarean section, nursing roles and responsibilities. Within those policies and procedures, I am able to identify um, the resources that that particular hospital has. Do they need to call in an OR team? Do they not? Um, if you don't know what policies and procedures to request, you can ask the attorney client that you're working with if he or she is able to obtain an index, a copy of the policy index. Then it kind of becomes like a little menu. You know, I'll take that one, that one, that one, that one, because different hospitals may um, um verbalize, may, may, may assign the names of those policies a little bit different. But in some hospitals, those policies might be really clearly delineated where it may give a definition of an emergency C-section is considered stat. Um, the plan is to have an immediate delivery if the OR is available. You might have um, another definition um, as an urgency section, and that C-section would need to be in process within 30 minutes. And then you might have another definition such as um, a scheduled C-section. And the ideal would be to have that delivery occur within 60 to 90 minutes. So if I have those policies and procedures, then I can go back into my review to see if based on the situation and the level of the hospital that this is occurring in, then I'm going to be able to ascertain better were those resources available as stated or did the nursing staff do what they needed to do to expedite that patient's movement to the operating room based on that culture and protocol of that hospital. Just brought up um, a phrase that triggered something in me, which is the nurses being empowered to expedite the delivery. Um, tell us what happens when the nurses are not feeling empowered and they don't expedite the delivery. Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. Hello, everyone. I'd like to introduce you to Pat Iyer, and she has her master's in nursing, and many of you know her um, from her work as a legal nurse consultant and myself, Barbara Levin. We're here to give you a little snippet of information to discuss with you the value of networking. Pat, would you like to talk to our group about networking and how that can enhance 
their legal nurse consulting practice. I know that it's frustrating for legal nurse consultants who are hitting a slump in their business or are new and say, how do I get cases? How do I get attorneys to pay attention to me? I hear this commonly. And the answer in part is in networking with individuals who are either attorneys or people who know attorneys. One of the key principles in networking is to give first. When you're in a situation where you're meeting somebody for the first time, or they're saying, how is your business going? Is to first offer the other person assistance. There's a reciprocity principle that works out really well in networking. Somebody says to you, well, you know, I'm searching for an accountant. Oh, I have an accountant I've been pleased with. I've worked with for several years. Uh, Would you like an introduction to the accountant? You're not coming across as being needy when you approach the conversation that way, as in, oh, I want you to give me a referral to an attorney. But there's a natural tendency in reciprocity to want to help somebody who has just helped you. And you never know who knows trial attorneys. It could be your next door neighbor. It could be your dental hygienist. It could be, and for sure, it'll be your accountant because accountants do tax returns for attorneys and they are a great referral source. When you introduce yourself to somebody, one of the other keys in networking is to explain how you help people. I'm a legal nurse consultant. If you say that, you may get a puzzled look on somebody's face, and you've probably seen it. Legal nurse. So are you an attorney? No, you're a nurse. Are you? Did you get legal training? I have found that what works is to say, suppose your mother was in a car accident, and as a result of that accident, had a lot of injuries and a lot of medical records. Your mother goes to a plaintiff attorney to sue the person who hit her car from behind, and the attorney turns to a nurse to say, can you give me a summary? Can you explain the injuries? What are the complications? The attorney doesn't want to wade through all those records. That's your role as a legal nurse consultant. And when you explain it that way, you see, ah, okay, I understand. So part of networking is knowing how to explain who you are, who you work with, and then as that person gets to know you and trust you, is in a position to then respond to your request for referrals. Taking that information forward, a great way to network with our colleagues is to attend legal nurse consulting conferences, as well as clinical conferences, you are able to put yourself out there, network with your colleagues, find out what their needs are, explain to them perhaps that maybe you are looking for some assistance, whether it's looking for an expert or assistance with somebody to review a report for you, work with an attorney client of yours. There are so many ways um, to network within our own community. And that's what Pat and I are here to talk to you about now. We are very excited to offer you the opportunity to attend our seventh Legal Nurse Consulting Virtual Conference. This will be held March 23, 24, 25, 2023. 
We have a variety of nationally recognized speakers and we have some surprises for you to see. Pat, I'd like you to talk about one of our keynote speakers, if you'd share that with the group. Sure. You might have read the book, The Good Nurse, or seen the Netflix movie. I was one of the legal nurse consultants involved with prosecutors to identify the patients killed by Charles Cullen, who was a New Jersey nurse, worked in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and killed patients for 17 years. In the presentation that I will give at the conference, I will also involve Dr. Kathleen Ashton, who is the nurse who was hired by many of the plaintiff attorneys representing families of patients in the hospitals where Charles Cullen worked. We'll also share with you a clinical case involving a man who accidentally electrocuted himself and suffered severe body injuries and burns. You'll hear from the attorney who handled his case and successfully settled that case at the end of last year, and Nancy Stuck, the legal nurse consultant who's one of my coaching clients, who worked on the case to summarize the medical records of this man. We've got business topics, and we have an expert on referral marketing who will share with us some tips on why referrals are so important those referrals that you get through networking. You will hear all this and more on legal topics, clinical topics, business topics. We want you to join us March 23, 24, 25, 2023. We want you to see our link below, lnc.tips forward slash March 2023 virtual. We look forward to seeing you. See you there. Now let's return to the show. That's a really good question. And I'll tell you why, because I've worked in um, five different hospitals. And what I have learned over the course of my own practice, as well as reviewing cases from hospitals all over the United States is there is this thing called culture. And there are cultures within hospitals that may allow nurses to be more assertive in their decision-making and have the blessing of that administration to mobilize a patient back to the OR without a physician's order. Um, other hospitals don't have that same laxity. And there needs to be a physician present that makes, that places the order to mobilize that patient back to the operating room. Um, I've been in hospitals where you know you have a prolapsed umbilical cord because I see it. And I will have to say more times than not, when those critical situations come up, the team has been trained to mobilize that patient immediately to the OR. Better to get to the OR and then the patient stabilizes and you're able to more calmly and orderly perform that C-section than wait and have a delay that may have had a negative sequela to that scenario. So, I always take into account when I'm reviewing these cases, 
the type of hospital, as we already talked about, the number of deliveries. I've reviewed the policies and procedures. I've reviewed the scenario at hand. And before I opine as to whether or not I feel, in my opinion, that there was a delay, I have to take all of these variables into consideration. Because remember, that level three hospital may be able to deliver within five to eight minutes, but this level one or level two hospital over here may deliver in 28 minutes. And that's perfectly okay. So there are so many variables to take into account before you're quick to say there was a delay in delivery because there are standards out there to support all different types of facilities. And um, as I said, looking at their policies and procedures, trying to better understand their culture. Now, there may be some RN influence delays. There could be some physician influence delays or institution influence delays. And those can be multiple, but that would be for a different discussion and podcast. I'm really trying to focus on that whole 30 minute and how do I navigate that? You bring back a memory, Karen, of when I was a student nurse in my OB rotation and took the fetal heart rate using one of those old big stethoscopes well before we had fetal monitoring machines. A fetoscope. Yes. And what was drilled into me by my instructor was the upper and lower parameters that were safe. And this fetal heart rate was 60. And I went out to the nurse's station and the obstetrician for this woman was sitting in a chair and the head nurse was sitting in his lap and they were giggling. And I stood there and I said to them, I need for you to recheck this fetal heart rate. It's low, sounds low to me. And they sprang into action. I was very impressed with the romance that was in the air that immediately energized into movement. And they went in and indeed this woman was in distress. The baby was in distress. There was a cord issue that was causing this fetal heart rate to go down. And they were in the operating room as quickly as could be. I was impressed with how fast it was, but also with the fact that they took me seriously and rechecked and did what they were supposed to do. So I could see so many factors like, oh, she's a student nurse. You know, why would we pay attention to her? What does she know? Or you know, let's continue giggling and cuddling in the nurse's station, which later on I figured out, you know, maybe that wasn't the best place for them to be doing that. Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. But move forward to the point where we now have fetal monitoring strips. We now have much better indicators that there is an emergency that's developing. Tell us about the, the role of fetal monitoring in picking up these problems. Um, Well, fetal monitoring is an absolute requisite and fundamental knowledge requirement for any registered nurse working in labor and delivery or in a high-risk unit. 
Most of the cases that I review, um, because obviously I'm labor and delivery, high risk OB, so my area of expertise is fetal monitoring. So the grand majority of the cases that I review have fetal monitoring involved. So when I receive a case, um, of course, I always know the allegation going in. But one of the things that I do, and this just helps prevent any possibility of of biases on my part is I don't look at the fetal monitor strip right away. I know what the allegation is. So I begin my review by creating a non-opinionated timeline. I go through the whole medical record and I write all the entries, all the fetal monitor entries by the nurse, all the interventions, all the communications made as it relates to the fetal monitoring. Then what I do is I then take the fetal monitor strip. I go back to the very beginning and I compare and contrast what the nurse interpreted and what the true interpretation is by me. I am able to very, very quickly, um, have a good, have a good knowledge as far as what the knowledge base was for that nurse or nurses taking care of the patient or a knowledge deficit as it relates to fetal monitoring. So can that cause a delay in delivery? It absolutely can. Um, if the nurse fails to correctly interpret the fetal heart rate tracing, then the nurse is going to fail to intervene appropriately based on the physiology or etiology of what the fetal heart rate tracing is telling you. Then she or he is going to fail in communicating timely and appropriately to the physician. So you can kind of see how that snowball effect is already starting. The provider relies on us. We are the eyes and the ears and the physician cannot respond if the physician doesn't know. And so let's put this scenario in a night shift. So um, you have a nurse, you might, the, the, um, the patient's physician is probably not in house. Maybe there's an OB in house, but he's only there for emergencies. So he's sleeping in the lounge. When I see and I identify that there is a fetal monitoring knowledge deficit on the part of the nurse and she is not interpreting correctly, therefore not intervening correctly, I then detour off of that path a little bit. Now I'm going to start questioning different, different things that are occurring on the unit. One, is there a charge nurse? Is that charge nurse involved in this case? Does that charge nurse have a patient assignment herself? Many, many, many hospital settings are really trying to not have the charge nurse have a patient load because there are so many responsibilities on a charge nurse of her orchestrating that labor and delivery unit. It's really hard for her to be away from the nurse's station and the central monitor and managing the labor and delivery unit. So I, I find out um, if she has an assignment. I request of the attorney to get the charge nurse worksheet. On that charge nurse worksheet, I will have the list of all the nurses that were working. What were their assignments? Did they get their breaks? Did they get their lunch breaks? Um, were their assignments appropriate? 
Was there enough staffing that day? Are there staffing guidelines and policies? If the staffing numbers were short, did the charge nurse reach out to administration or the staffing office? What was done on the part of the charge nurse? So that's that's a big piece of the pie, trying to understand what was really occurring on that day. The next thing is trying to ascertain what the knowledge is of that particular nurse. Do we have access to her um, personnel file where we might find what her CEU credits are? Um, What is the requirement of that hospital as it relates to fetal monitoring education? Is it annually in their competency program? Does it require a formal class every couple years? Um, Is this a new grad? Is this a seasoned nurse? All of these variables really play into it. And I caution you, um, just because it's a new grad, I have had some new grads that are sharp as ever. And I've had seasoned nurses who have made some definite errors. Um, Depositions are another place where this knowledge deficit or knowledge um, mastery can be Mm -hmm. determined as well. Um, I've read depositions where um, the attorney asked when the nurse's last fetal monitoring class was, and her answer was 10 years ago. And this is what I'm going to tell you. Fetal monitoring is an evolving art, science, knowledge. I worked in OB for over 25 years. And as a perinatal clinical nurse specialist, not only did I teach fetal monitoring, but I attended conferences and classes and the knowledge and the learning never stops. It's not a one and done thing. So those are some things that you want to be able to dig a little deep into in trying to um, ascertain the fetal monitoring knowledge. And the last thing I want to say, because I know our time is coming to an end, and this is something new that I just read that I think is very valuable. And that is, I was reviewing the newest edition of AWAN's perinatal nursing text, which is in its fifth edition dated 2021. In the perinatal patient safety and quality section, it was discussing um, the national quality forums, never events in the perinatal setting. And in that discussion, there was 14 suggestions to be added to the list of never events in the perinatal setting. And never events are um, discharging a mom with the wrong baby, an infant abduction, an infant or neonatal or maternal serious injury or death. So of the 14 suggestions that were recommended to be added to this never events list, three of the 14 specifically related to fetal monitoring knowledge. So I view that as the awareness is definitely increasing. The responsibility of the nurses caring for pregnant patients is imperative that they have this knowledge. So the criticality of fetal monitoring knowledge in the care of pregnant patients and labor and delivery and the anapartum setting is paramount. So um, I know that was a lot of information in a short Mm -hmm. period of time, but fetal monitoring is um, 
a very, very critical piece of knowledge that nurses need to have practicing in labor and delivery. And we as the experts have to know how to dig down and um, determine before we opine if there is some worrisome or significant knowledge deficit that may have influenced the delay in delivery. Well said, Karen. Well said. I know that the person who's watching this on our YouTube channel or listening to it on our, our audio channels is going to want me to ask you, how can they locate you if they're interested in talking with you further about your services? Well, my name is Karen Harmon. H-A-R-M-O-N. I do not have a web website or um, I never have. So the way to get a hold of me would be through my email. And that is Karen Harmon Medlegal, all one word, K-A-R-E-N-H-A-R-M-O-N-M-E-D-L-E-G-A-L, Karen Harmon Medlegal at yahoo.com. And if you email me, I'll, I'll be more than happy to provide you a phone number if you wanted to ask any further questions or um, chat. Thank you, Karen. I appreciate you and appreciate everything that you've shared. You're focused, as we said in the beginning of this podcast, in a critical area of nursing care, medical care, where the stakes are very high and everything needs to go well appropriately according to the standards and the guidelines to get women into the delivery room as quickly as possible when there are signs of an emergency. Yeah. And for you who's been watching this program, please give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down on YouTube. The YouTube channel is YouTube at Legal Nurse Business. That is the handle for our show, for our podcast. And we welcome your thoughts and comments about the show. Be sure to come back next week for a new topic, new guest, or if you're binge listening or binge watching, click on down below for the next show. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hi, I am Pat Iyer. And coming up next, you'll have an opportunity to meet a nurse who is a legal nurse consultant who is fulfilling a unique role, and that is of a mediator in helping two parties come to a resolution of a conflict. To my knowledge, there are very few nurses in the United States who fulfill this role, and even fewer of them are legal nurse consultants. Meet Jamie Gary, who is a master's prepared educator, legal nurse consultant, mediator, and mediator trainer, who just completed a podcast with me. And I'm going to ask Jamie now to give a quick recap. What are the topics that we covered in the podcast? Thank you, Pat. The topics that we covered in the podcast today is really a review of the concept of mediation from my last uh, podcast with you. Um, looking at the mediation process as a niche for the legal nurse consultant and why nurses are legal nurses are um, 
a good choice outside of being an attorney or a judge in the mediation uh, role. Uh, also looking at the skills and the education that is needed for this advanced role as a legal nurse consultant to be a mediator. So what are the skills needed? What is the education needed? And um, thinking about um, the, the role of the mediator versus the role of the nurse attending mediation and being able to differentiate between the two. We covered a lot of ground in Jamie's podcast. It's one that you're going to want to listen to or watch on our YouTube channel. It gives a different version or a different vision, I would say is a better way of saying it, of how you can expand your role as a nurse and expand your role as a legal nurse consultant. It'll stir up some thoughts for sure. So check it out. Be sure you pick Jamie Gary's podcast and it'll be coming up in our next Legal Nurse podcast. Stay tuned. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.